Good evening. Welcome to our Catholic education class tonight. We are continuing our journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, open up our minds to know the truth, to hear the truth, to love the truth, to live the truth out, the, out every day. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Incorporate us into your life so that we can be a light to the world. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome everybody, and uh, if you're watching on YouTube, that's great. Uh, you can also listen to this as a podcast on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and type in Henry Cordonier, uh, all the podcasts will pop up there. And um, also, I have books available for you. Uh, My Gospel and More Gospel are available on Amazon in the print format and also as ebooks. And the first book, uh, My Gospel, is available at archives.org as an audiobook. It's free and you can listen to it in any way you want. You can download it, take it with you, and listen to it as you as you go jogging down the road, because I'm sure you want to keep your body healthy as you're keeping your soul healthy. <laughs> uh, I tell my students at school, you can take me with you wherever you go, and then they groan. <laughs> All right, we are in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We're talking about Jesus, the mysteries of his public life. And we're on paragraph 535. Jesus' public life begins with his baptism by John in the Jordan. John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I think I should make a clarification right there. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. John did not baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a symbol. By coming into the water and being baptized by John, you were saying, I want to be ready for the Messiah. John's saying the Messiah is going to be here any moment, any time. You, you don't want him to catch you in your sins. You want to change your life so that when the Messiah comes, you'll be ready for him and his message. And so John was preparing the way for the Lord, but John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. We're on paragraph 535. A crowd of sinners tax collectors and soldiers, Pharisees and Sadducees and prostitutes, came to be baptized by him. Then Jesus appears. The Baptist hesitates, but Jesus insists and receives baptism. Why would he hesitate? Well, he's about to baptize the the Lamb of God. <laughs> right. He's going to baptize Jesus, who he knows is the Messiah, the Son of God, and it's a baptism of repentance. Does yeah. Jesus have anything to repent of? Nope. No. And so John says, you should baptize me, not me baptize you. And Jesus says, let it be so for now. I think Jesus is uh, doing this to give everybody a good example. John, John knows who Jesus is, but nobody else does. So if Jesus would have backed away and not accepted it, you know, it would have been a scandal to the rest of the people. It would have been Jesus saying like, well, I don't believe your message, John. So instead of explaining, you know, it's just too much to explain. So Jesus says, hey, let's just do this. Let me give a good example for others to follow, even though I don't need it. 
And you know, that happens in the Christian life. There are many times when we should, sometimes we, we ourselves, maybe we don't need to do this. But maybe by us doing it, we give a good example to others to help them do it. The Baptist hesitates, but Jesus insists and receives baptism. Then the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, comes upon Jesus, and a voice from heaven proclaims, This is my beloved Son. This is the manifestation of Jesus as Messiah of Israel and Son of God. I can't help it, but I think i got to make a couple comments here. I don't know if we're going to get through all of I want to get through tonight, but... Uh, um, it says the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. Sometimes people don't understand. I've had students think the Holy Spirit is a bird. <laughs> Sorry. The Holy Spirit is not a bird. And when it says the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, what did John see? I don't think anybody knows for sure. In artwork, the Holy Spirit has forever been depicted as a dove, which is a beautiful thing. But what did John see? I don't know. Was it an actual bird, a dove, which came fluttering down and landed on Jesus' head or his shoulder? That's possible. I think it's probably more likely that John saw a vision of some sort. Maybe it was a light, like the light that appeared above the tabernacle uh, that showed the glory of God. Maybe it was, uh, who knows? But it, but it came down in kind of a slow fashion, the way a, a landing bird would come down. I don't think anybody really knows for sure exactly what John saw. But I want to make it clear that the Holy Spirit not is not a bird. Paragraph 536. The baptism of Jesus is on his part the acceptance and the inauguration of his mission as God's suffering servant. He allows himself to be numbered among sinners. He is already the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Already he is anticipating the baptism of his bloody death. Already he is coming to fulfill all righteousness. That is, he is submitting himself entirely to his Father's will. Out of love he consents to this baptism of death for the remission of our sins. The Father's voice responds to the Son's acceptance, proclaiming his entire delight in his Son. The spirit whom Jesus possessed in fullness from his conception comes to rest on him. Jesus will be the source of the spirit for all mankind. At his baptism, the heavens were opened. The heavens that Adam's sin had closed. And the waters were sanctified by the descent of Jesus and the spirit, a prelude to the new creation. Paragraph 537. Through baptism, the Christian is sacramentally assimilated to Jesus, who in his own baptism anticipates his death and resurrection. Of course, you understand the symbolism of going under the water, you drown. Coming out of the water is as a dead man coming back to life. And in baptism, we die to sin, and we rise to a new life in Christ. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, we are born again. The Christian must enter into this mystery of humble self-abasement and repentance. Go down into the water with Jesus in order to rise with him. Be reborn of water and the Spirit so as to become the Father's beloved Son in the Son and walk in newness of life. Let us be buried with Christ by baptism to rise with Him. Let us go down with Him to be raised with Him. And let us rise with Him to be glorified with Him. Everything that happened to Christ lets us know that 
after the bath of water, the Holy Spirit swoops down upon us from high heaven, and that adopted by the Father's voice, we become sons of God. And it is true. As John says to all those who believed in him, he gave the power to become sons of God. When we believe and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and that's what, what's happening in baptism. Now, for most of us, uh, we were baptized as infants. And our parents and our godparents expressed faith in Christ for us. But there does come a time as we grow up, somewhere along the line, we need to accept that baptism as our own. You know, I love it every year at the Easter Mass. After the sermon, the priest, instead of saying, let's recite the creed, he said, let's renew our baptismal vows. I love that. And every year, I, I say those with all the sincerity and enthusiasm that I possibly can. I mean, it's, I, I just want to like yell, I do, you know. And um, because what happened to me as a baby, I now get to proclaim publicly in front of the whole church that I believe and I follow. It, it's, you know, that's what Lent is all about. Lent is building up to that renewal of baptismal promises. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's all about. We are increasing our prayer, increasing our devotions, so that when that moment comes, we have brothers and we have other people who are going to be baptized into the church, and we are praying and fasting with them, getting ready for that wonderful moment. But we are all going to renew our own baptismal promises. And, uh, and that is an exciting moment. That's an exciting moment. We are on uh, paragraph 538, Jesus' temptations. The Gospels speak of a time of solitude for Jesus in the desert immediately after his baptism by John. Driven by the Spirit into the desert, Jesus remains there for 40 days without eating. He lives among wild beasts, and angels minister to him. At the end of this time, Satan tempts him three times, seeking to compromise his filial attitude toward God. Filial means uh, the attitude of a loving son toward his father. Jesus rebuffs these attacks, which recapitulate the temptations of Adam in paradise and of Israel in the desert. And the devil leaves him until an opportune time. You know, Jesus was tempted. And the Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he never sinned. And I think it's something to, um, to take note of is that the devil tempted Jesus in the desert. Uh, but the temptations didn't end, didn't end there. It says, until an opportune time, Jesus is going to be tempted again. And you and me, what about us? We are going to be tempted, I'm sad to say, we are going to be tempted until the last moment of our life. Yeah. It's never going to end. And we see the same temptations that Jesus had in the desert. We almost have them word, word for word as he's dying on the cross. Throw yourself down from the temple. And then later, the chief priests and the scribes, take yourself down from the cross. And then we will believe. You know, it's the same temptation. And we can look at that and say, wow. I'm going to be tempted all my life too? Yep, we are. And so we have to deal with it. You know, we simply have to deal with that fact that the battle is never over until it's over. Until we enter into the kingdom of heaven, we have to keep up our guard and we have to fight the good fight. 
Paragraph 539. The evangelists indicate the salvific meaning of this mysterious event. Jesus is the new Adam who remained faithful just where the first Adam had given in to temptation. Jesus fulfills Israel's vocation perfectly. In contrast to those who had once provoked God during 40 years in the desert, Christ reveals himself as God's servant totally obedient to the divine will. In this, Jesus is the devil's conqueror. He binds the strong man to take back his plunder. Jesus' victory over the tempter in the desert anticipates victory at the Passion, the supreme act of obedience of his filial love for his Father. You know, a thought comes to my mind and I want to say to those people who might be watching or listening uh, to the podcast that maybe you're working around the house and you're listening. That's great. That's wonderful. But if you're not, if you're actually sitting and watching the video, you should try to have the Catechism of the Catholic Church with you and so that you can read along. Many, many times in the Catechism, there are quotations around pieces of scripture or something from a saint, and, and you would be able to see those quotations, and it would give better meaning to what you're listening to. So if possible, follow along with a Catechism in your hand. Uh, I think it will make the experience... Uh, better, the learning experience will be better. All right, back to the Catechism, paragraph 540. Jesus' temptation reveals the way in which the Son of God is Messiah, contrary to the way Satan proposes to him and the way men wish to attribute to him. This is why Christ vanquished the tempter for us. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sinning. By the solemn forty days of Lent, the church unites herself each year to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. And what do you say, Uli? Are you having a good Lent? Yeah. yeah. Me too. I'm, I'm having a really good, I'm having one of the best Lents ever. The kingdom of God is at hand, paragraph 541. Now after Jesus was, no, excuse me, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think I have to make a statement about that sentence. Um, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I really believe, I'm not an expert theologian, but I really believe that Jesus was talking about the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Are you familiar with those? In the book of Daniel, Daniel says there'll be 70 weeks of years, 490 years, from the time that the word went forth to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, it will be 490 years. And in another place in the book of Daniel, he talks about successive kingdoms, that there will be one kingdom following the next, and the last kingdom is the kingdom of God. And, and so when Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, I think he's saying the 490 years that Daniel predicted are up. The time, it's, this is the time. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. What Daniel said was going to come, it's here. Yeah, it is very cool. I think it's very cool. I, I, I really think that's what he's referring to, although I could be mistaken. 
but don't tell my kids that I could be mistaken. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. To carry out the will of the Father, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now the Father's will is to raise up men to share in his own divine life. He does this by gathering men around his son, Jesus Christ. This gathering is the church. On earth, the seed and beginning of that kingdom. Yes, when we hear kingdom of God, it could mean several things. It could mean heaven. It could mean the church. It could mean you individually accepting Christ as the king of your heart. And Jesus would say the kingdom of God is within you. And so when you hear kingdom of God, you got to look at the context and see what it, what, what it is he's talking about. Paragraph 542. Christ stands at the heart of this gathering of men into the family of God. By his word, through signs that manifest the reign of God, and by sending out his disciples, Jesus calls all people to come together around him. But above all, in the great paschal mystery, his death on the cross and his resurrection, he would accomplish the coming of his kingdom. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Into this union with Christ, all men are called. The Proclamation of the Kingdom of God, paragraph 543. Everyone is called to enter the kingdom. First announced to the children of Israel, this messianic kingdom is intended to accept men of all nations. To enter it, one must first accept Jesus' word. The word of the Lord is compared to a seed which is sown in a field. Those who hear it with faith are numbered among the little flock of Christ, having truly received the kingdom. Then, by its own power, the seed sprouts and grows until the harvest. Paragraph 544. The kingdom belongs to the poor and the lowly, which means those who accepted it with humble hearts. Jesus is sent to preach good news to the poor. He declares them blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To them, the little ones, the Father is pleased to reveal what remains hidden from the wise and the learned. Jesus shares the life of the poor from the cradle to the cross. He experiences hunger, thirst, and privation. Jesus identifies himself with the poor of every kind and makes active love toward them, the condition for entering his kingdom. Now, in that paragraph, they had two things. In the first part of the paragraph, it's talking about good news to the poor, meaning the humble, the lowly, those who will submit themselves to the will of God. And at the end of it, it kind of talked about actually uh, materially poor. And Jesus was, throughout his life, materially poor. Is one more important than the other? I think so. I think the poverty of spirit. In Matthew's Gospel, in the Beatitudes, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In Luke's gospel, it's blessed are the poor. They're, they're both there. And, and they are both connected, being materially poor and poor in the spirit, I, I think have a connection. Um, oftentimes, I have heard missionaries, I have a good friend who does missionary work in Haiti. And he builds many, many houses for the poor in Haiti. And yet he tells me that the people there, even though they are desperately poor, I mean desperately poor. If you saw the conditions, it just blows your mind. He says that the people themselves have an interior joy and a peace and a simpleness and, and a faith in God that puts us to shame. And so sometimes I think that our excess of material things 
sins has a way of smothering the Spirit of God. Uh, I really do. It, we simply, it's like in the sower and the seed, the, the weeds grow up and choke out the, the plant. And Jesus said the weeds are the cares, the anxieties, the riches, and the pleasures of this world. We just get so smothered by all the stuff in our life. Whereas those who are materially poor, sometimes they don't have much to focus on. And so their focus is more easily uh, turned toward God himself. And face it, we all pray a whole lot more when we're in a tough spot. It's just natural. Because we're, we're kind of we're kind of out of bullets, and so we ask God to help us because we stop depending on ourselves. But I think by far the most important meaning there is people who are poor in spirit. Those who are humble and do not think of themselves more highly than they should, they are willing to accept Jesus and to accept his words and to accept his teaching and to accept all that he promises to give. Um, I, I truly believe that that is what he meant when he said, unless you become like a child, you shall not enter the kingdom. And that quality of a child is that they are lowly, they are humble, they believe what their parents tell them. And they don't fight it with a prideful rationality of, I know better. Yeah. They simply accept. And so, hopefully, we can cultivate in our own selves a humble, accepting, faithful uh, acceptance of everything that Jesus says. He is the Son of God. Everything he says is absolutely true. Do I believe that? Do I really believe that? Do I believe it down to the core of my being? Yes. Because he is God. And I am not. I am his creature. Paragraph 545. Jesus invites sinners to the table of the kingdom. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He invites them to that conversion without which one cannot enter the kingdom, but shows them in word and deed his Father's boundless mercy for them and the vast joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The supreme proof of his love will be the sacrifice of his own life for the forgiveness of sins. Well, absolutely. We cannot enter the kingdom of God without that conversion. We have to accept Jesus as our Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We are stuck in sin. And the sooner you know you're a sinner, the, the sooner you become disgusted with your sinfulness, the quicker you will accept Jesus. When you think you're okay, when you think you got it made, when you think, I, I, I'm doing pretty well on my own. When you are thinking like that, you are not going to accept Jesus. Jesus came to call sinners, and people have to know that they're sinners. I remember one time, right after my conversion, I went to the dorm room. I was still at Miami. This is like five days after my own conversion. And I talked to these two girls that we knew and told them about giving your life to Christ, and he'll forgive all your sins. And the one girl said, I don't have any sins. I'm not a sinner. Oh, my goodness. I knew for a fact that she had plenty of sins. And um, 
But as long as that's your attitude, I think I'm fine just the way I am. Well, you're never going to follow Jesus, and you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I came to call sinners. Now, we are all sinners, but until you know you're a sinner, until you accept the fact that you're a sinner, you're not going to be open to the call of Jesus. Paragraph 546. Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom comes in the form of parables, a characteristic feature of his teaching. Through his parables, he invites people to the feast of the kingdom, but he also asks for a radical choice. To gain the kingdom, one must give everything. Words are not enough. Deeds are required. The parables are like mirrors for man. Will he be hard soil or good earth for the word? What use has he made of the talents he has received? Jesus and the presence of the kingdom in this world are secretly at the heart of the parables. One must enter the kingdom, that is, become a disciple of Christ, in order to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. For those who stay outside, everything remains enigmatic. Yeah. Yes. I asked that very question to my students in class today. I said, what does it cost to follow Jesus? And the one girl said, nothing. Oh, my goodness. You could not be more wrong. You know. It's a simple cost, but the cost is everything. Jesus says you can't put mother or father, or husband or wife, children, farm, business, career. You can't, he said even your own life, you can't put any of that ahead of him. And I said to the students, Jesus is very demanding, isn't he? Who does he think he is? <laughs> he's God. What? Yeah. Does he think he's God? Yeah. He does. <laughs> yes, he does. He's very demanding. And, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, if you were going to build a tower, wouldn't you sit down and calculate the cost before you started? And what he's saying to people is, to follow me is going to cost everything. You've got to be willing to suffer. You've got to be willing to die if necessary. Are you willing to pay the price? You should know that before you begin. But it's worth it. But it's completely worth it. Because there's another parable that I would connect that with. And that's the, the parable of the treasure in the field. He said the man discovers a treasure in the field. He sells everything he, he, he has to get, that, to get that treasure. So what does it cost to follow Jesus? It costs everything. But when you sell everything, what do you do with it? You buy a treasure that is far greater than everything you sold. That's what people have to realize. Yes, it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. But would not anyone pay a dollar to get something worth a thousand dollars? You'd be crazy not to. But you have to believe that that treasure is actually a treasure. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to believe that Jesus is going to fulfill all that he has said. We're on paragraph 547, the signs of the kingdom of God. Jesus accompanies his words with many mighty works and wonders and signs, which manifest that the kingdom is present in him and attest that he was the promised Messiah. 548. The signs worked by Jesus attest that the Father has sent him. They invite belief in him. To those who turn to him in faith, he grants what they ask. 
So miracles strengthen faith in the one who does his father's work. They bear witness that he is the son of God. But his miracles can also be occasions for offense. They are not intended to satisfy, satisfy people's curiosity or desire for magic. Despite his evident miracles, some people reject Jesus. He is even accused of acting by the power of demons. Yeah, well, I don't think Jesus' miracles get near enough attention. Without the miracles, it would have been very, very difficult for anybody to believe in him. As in the gospel, we hear they saw him change water into wine at Cana, and it says that was the first public miracle, and his disciples believed in him. Yeah. Miracles are really, really, really important. And it's something that is completely missing from every other religion on earth. Muhammad never did a miracle. Buddha never did a miracle. Joe Smith never did a miracle. None of these people ever did miracles. And so they should not have any faith put in them. But Jesus did miracles. He did them for a period of three years. He did them in front of hundreds thousands of people. He did them every day. These were witnessed publicly by tens of thousands of people. They cannot be denied. Yeah. And in fact, his contemporaries did not deny them. They just said, you do it by the power of the devil. They didn't say you're doing, you're not doing miraculous stuff. They just questioned the source of the power. Yeah. They didn't question what had actually happened because everybody could see these awesome displays of power. Yeah, it's supernatural. Power over, over nature, power over sickness, power over disease, power over matter, multiplying loaves of bread, and power over death, raising the dead. I mean, the miracles of Jesus are extremely important. And the miracles of the apostles are extremely important in gaining faith that, that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can be that treasure in a field, that he can fulfill all of your greatest hopes and desires. Uh, I even you know, go as far as, you know, there, there's been saints throughout uh, history who have had gift of miracles so right to speak. which you know i mean hey hey our favorite saint saint vincent ferrer yeah i mean i mean he, he like he came like he's a walking miracle i mean he came over a thousand years after the apostles i mean some so yeah. i'm just saying it, it's it's a it's a it's another general I mean, I'm saying, for most people reading it in a book isn't as good as seeing it for seeing yourself it for themselves and and i i know I know a lot of kids that in school, you know, they say, well, I, well, why can't we just see this? You know what I mean? I know like a lot of kids in your class, like when I was in your class. Right. A lot of them would say, well, why, why can't I see it? You know? Because they're not looking. I know. When your eyes are closed, yeah. you don't see anything. Yeah. I mean, miracles are happening today. They're watching. They're, they're playing Fortnite. They're playing Call of Duty. That's yeah. what they're looking at. They're not going to see a miracle. If they would go on the internet and Google miracles, or, or they, there are reports of things happening around the world all the time. Mm -hmm. But they're not looking at any of that. No. Therefore, they don't see it. No. The only time they care is when they're sitting in your class. Yeah. And you're talking about it. And they say, well, if I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look, and how many miracles have you prayed for? I mean, if you were constantly praying for a miracle, I mean, I have been healed instantly twice in my life. Instantaneously healed. That's pretty cool. That's pretty and, cool. and it is an awesome thing. Mm -hmm. You know, since I brought it up, I'll tell you one. Yeah. Uh, well, I know your throat one. Oh, yeah. I was going to tell you, just yeah, I had just it. a terrible sore throat. 
and cold, and I'd been that way for quite some time, and, and that's something everybody can relate to. Everybody's had a cold and a sore throat, mm -hmm. but you did not get better in one second. No. <laughs> you, but uh, there was uh, some people who were praying for healing, and I stepped up, and the lady took some holy oil, and she made a cross on my throat, and she was going to start praying. The moment that holy oil touched my throat, I was healed in one second. I was instantly normal, instantly better. She started to say a prayer. I stopped her. I said, stop. I'm already healed. <laughs> she was rather surprised. Um, I said, the moment you touched my throat, I was cured. Wow. It is, it is amazing. And just to think that Jesus did those miracles all the time, and just fantastic miracles. I mean, the dude's a leper. Suddenly, his skin is perfectly good. Yeah. The dude is blind, and now he can see. Yeah. And he's running around, leaping and jumping like, whoa. I mean, it had to be so impressive. And even today, like a place at Lourdes, people are still cured. Yeah, yeah. And who's ever there to witness it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I had a priest once who was talking about his trip to Lourdes. Yeah. And he said there was a little girl who had some sort of crippled arm, and he said it was healed right. He said, I washed it. He said she, her arm just straightened out and was healed. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and we have um, the Basilica up by Finlay. Basilica of Mary of Consolation or something. Oh, that's in uh, Cary, Ohio. Yeah, but it's up by Finley. Yeah, it's, it's not it's too like, It's like 15 minutes away. Yeah, not too far. Anyway, I mean, they have a whole, their bottom, there's a bottom part. Yeah, basement. yeah. And I mean, now I don't know how, what, but within like the last hundred years, I mean, a lot of people were, were right. there. crutches, wheelchairs. Yeah, you know, like, I'm just saying like the last hundred years, like right there was a place where yeah. a lot of miracles happened. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it and it's and that's not too far. It's right, and it's neat when people leave, you know, mm -hmm. stuff there. Yeah, you know, my crutches are there because I don't need them anymore. Yeah, and so, well, anyway, we got yeah. a little bit far afield, mm -hmm. but that's fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, miracles are important, and they're still happening today. Yeah. And, and that's another point to your religion, you know, are, is, is there a bunch of miracles coming out of the Islamic Right. Way? You know, is it, you know, right. the, none of that's happening. Correct. Correct. Um, we're on paragraph 549. By freeing some individuals from the earthly evils of hunger, injustice, illness, and death, Jesus performed messianic signs. Nevertheless, he did not come to abolish all evils here below, but to free men from the gravest slavery, sin, which thwarts them in their vocation as God's son and causes all forms of human bondage. Yeah, the greatest miracle is, is not a physical one. The greatest miracle is the spiritual healing of a human heart. That's, that's the greatest miracle. Conversion is the greatest miracle that I've ever seen. 550. The coming of God's kingdom means the defeat of Satan. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' exorcisms free some individuals from the domination of demons. They anticipate Jesus' great victory over the ruler of this world. The kingdom of God will be definitively established through Christ's cross. God reigned from the wood. And yes, Jesus has defeated uh, the devil. And he showed his power over demons through his exorcisms. And the ultimate defeat will be at the end of time when, when uh, Satan is cast down 
and uh, then there'll be nothing but heaven and hell. Paragraph 551, the keys of the kingdom. From the beginning of his public life, Jesus chose certain men, 12 in number, to be with him and to participate in his mission. He gives the 12 a share in his authority and sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. They remain associated forever with Christ's kingdom, for through them he directs the church. As my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Paragraph 552. Simon Peter holds first place in the college of the twelve. Jesus entrusted a unique mission to him. Through a revelation from the Father, Peter had confessed you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord then declared to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ, the living stone, thus assures his church, built on Peter, of victory over the powers of death. Because of the faith he confessed, Peter will remain the unshakable rock of the church. His mission will be to keep this faith from every lapse and to strengthen his brothers in it. Yeah, Jesus said, who do people say I am? And, and they gave answers and then he said, who do you say I am? And Peter, who had been infused with this knowledge from God the Father, he said, I believe you're the Son of God, you're the Savior. He, just, he, he defined Jesus. And so Jesus defined him. He said, Simon, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so Peter becomes the first leader of the church after Jesus will ascend and go up into heaven. And it had to be. Jesus had to leave someone in charge. Jesus had to leave living human beings on this earth to speak for him. Otherwise, we would be lost in endless argumentation over what is true, what is false, what is inspired, what is not. We, we, we would be totally lost and just argue endlessly as people do in many religions. Um, one thing that would, you know, I've heard my whole life, you know, the line that you are Peter and, I'm, and on this rock I will build my church. Yeah. Heard that my whole life. Yeah. But a couple years ago, watching something, and, um, or somebody said something, and I looked it up. Anyway, the rock, like, like where, where this was said, yeah. at, was Who's a that? giant rock. And it's like the only rock yeah. in, a, in a very, like, wide area. And, well, on, and, on, and on there what is, uh, was a pagan yeah. church. Yeah. And the pig, it was like Pam. Pan. Pan, which was uh, the, the god of sheep. Sheep, which, I mean, it's like, it's all just very. It all, know, oh, it, yeah. It all. Jesus just took flowed. them. This happened at Caesarea Philippi. And there's this huge rock, like 500 feet long and 100 feet high. Yeah. And that's the backdrop for all of this. Mm -hmm. And there was a temple to Caesar there, and there was a pagan temple to Pan. And Jesus is making Peter the rock. Later, he's going to make him the shepherd of the sheep. Yeah, I was saying. Yeah, I mean, it goes, it's, it's all a beautiful backdrop. Yeah, and honestly, it makes the statement a little bit more profound. Yeah, in, 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 in my mind, it's like this is this is yeah. rock solid. <laughs> oh, rock solid! I love the puns. I love the puns. Okay, well, let's keep rolling here. I'd like to get this section finished if we can today. We will see. Maybe, maybe not. Paragraph 553. Jesus entrusted a specific authority to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The power of the keys designates authority to govern the house of God, which is the church. 
Jesus, the good shepherd, confirmed this mandate after his resurrection. Feed my sheep. The power to bind and loose connotes the authority to absolve sins, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary decisions in the church. Jesus entrusted this authority to the church through the ministry of the apostles, and in particular through the ministry of Peter, the only one to whom he specifically entrusted the keys of the kingdom. When you see a statue of St. Peter, he's always pictured, or a painting, he's always pictured holding a pair of keys. Uh, the, the, the power to bind and loose, the power to say this is forbidden and this is allowed. This is to make doctrinal judgments, judgments about what is true and what is not true. The authority to forgive sins, your sins are forgiven or your sins are held bound. I mean, this is all uh, contained in the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles, and specifically to Peter. He is the rock, he is the shepherd, he is the keeper of the keys. Peter has a special niche in the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. And from that, uh, we have always seen that the successor of Peter who is the Bishop of Rome, called the Pope, he uh, inherits these same special prerogatives that Jesus gave to St. Peter. And it's the Bishop of Rome because Peter died in Rome. He was crucified in Rome under Caesar Nero. I guess if, if Peter had died in Jerusalem or if he had died in Antioch, uh, that would be the... the the diocese where the Pope would be. But he died in Rome, and so the Bishop of Rome takes his office. Um, just something that I just want to point out that was kind of a light bulb in my mind uh, when I was reading about St. Vincent. With, yeah, a lot of people, they have, they have uh, an issue with, you know, well, you know, why do I got to go to a priest, you know, type of thing. Like I said, Jesus gave the apostles his authority like right that, you know which and, and even me. and even more specifically you say why do we have to go to a priest to go to confession at the last supper specifically jesus said to the apostles whosoever sins you forgiven they are forgiven and whosoever sins you retain they are retained you know and so jesus like the cool thing about this all right is that jesus is actually like giving them real power and authority here right it's like it they it's not like they, they're gonna call up jesus and say hey should i forgive this guy's sins or not is it it's it's you know it's their personal right human judgment in, in their human in their humanness they are going to make decisions and that god is going to back up correct and i think that's so cool because what i was reading about saint vincent saint vincent said saint vincent is tired all right, one day, at the end of the day, and one of the, his helpers or whatever, I don't know if he, if he was another priest or not, but he was somebody who traveled with him a lot. It was like a personal guy with him. And he said, well, there's still another family that, that's requesting to come out to their house. They're, they, they're not, whatever, somebody's not well enough to come in. And he, and he told him, you go out, like, like I will give you the authority to go out and perform the miracle. He just said, you go out and heal them. You know, it, which means that like this, this power of miracles is really hit, hit given to him. Like it's given to him. Right. Which, and he has the ability to give it to another person. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and like that, I don't know why that scenario made the power of the ability to forgive sins click in my mind a lot better. But I'm saying, the, it, just because, I mean, bishops, it, they... Uh, right. They ordain and they literally pass on that power to yeah. this other human being. Because it's their power to give. You know right. What I mean? Because it's been given to them. That's right. You know, I, you, you are understanding it. You're yeah. getting it. Yeah. It, it, it all clicked, though, because St. Vincent gave his power of miracles to a, to 
to, to, a, to, a, to, yeah. a, to another fellow and said, look, I'm too tired anymore today. I can't take it. Yeah. You go, I've given you this power. You go. It's like me giving you $20 and saying, go down to the market and buy me a loaf of bread and some bologna. You had $20, now I have $20. I've got the 20 bucks. I give it to you. You can go and do it. Yes. And, uh, yeah. So, and these spiritual powers are just as real as that 20 bucks. And, and so and, and so kind of like my point with this is that priest, going to a priest is, is just as good as going to Jesus. Because it absolutely, is, it's like going to Jesus here. You know, like it is Jesus forgiving your sins through the priest because he has the, the, the and power. he has the power, and and he says so. He doesn't say Jesus forgives you. He says I absolve you from your sin. Yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, because he has the power to do it. It's an awesome power. Yeah, and if any young man before he thinks about being a priest. I mean, you ought to think about this. You are going to be given the power of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. St. Francis of Assisi never became a priest because he thought it was too great of an honor. Really? You know, he just saw, he said, look, you're a priest of the power of God. Yeah. You know? And he was a great saint and a holy man. But he never became a priest. Yeah. He took vows, but he never became a priest because he didn't feel he was worthy of the honor. Yeah, I just want to throw that out there because that was just like kind of yeah. Like big, that's big, no, that's perfect. You're getting it. You, that's great. That is great. Uh, paragraph five fifty four. A foretaste of the kingdom. The Transfiguration. From the day Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Master began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter scorns this prediction, nor do the others understand it any better than he. In this context, the mysterious episode of Jesus' transfiguration takes place on a high mountain before three witnesses chosen by himself, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face and clothes become dazzling with light, and Moses and Elijah appear speaking of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem, meaning his death and resurrection. A cloud covers him, and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Paragraph 555. For a moment, Jesus discloses his divine glory, confirming Peter's confession. He also reveals that he will have to, to go by the way of the cross at Jerusalem in order to enter his glory. Moses and Elijah had seen God's glory on the mountain. The law and the prophets had announced the Messiah's sufferings. Christ's passion is the will of the Father. The Son acts as God's servant. The cloud indicates the presence of the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity appeared. The Father in the voice, the Son in the man, and the Spirit in the shining cloud. It's one of those beautiful epiphanies. Uh, where you see all three persons of the Blessed Trinity at once. You were transfigured on the mountain, and your disciples, as much as they were capable of it, beheld your glory, O Christ our God, so that when they should see you crucified, they would understand that your passion was voluntary, and proclaim to the world that you truly are the splendor of the Father. Yeah, um... I think that this transfiguration was a definite help to the apostles. They are going to see Jesus whipped and scourged and, and humiliated and crucified. But they know he's God. They know he's the Son of God. They know he's the Savior. And they have seen his glory. And so when he's going through that, who knows, but maybe they made the connection. He's suffering this voluntarily. 
He's doing this for the salvation of the world. If they didn't understand it on the day it happened, later, on the day of Pentecost, they did understand. 556. On the threshold of the public life, the baptism, on the threshold of the Passover, the transfiguration. Jesus' baptism proclaimed the mystery of the first regeneration, namely our baptism. The transfiguration is the sacrament of the second regeneration, our own resurrection. From now on, we share in the Lord's resurrection through the Spirit, who acts in the sacraments of the body of Christ. The transfiguration gives us a foretaste of Christ's glorious coming when he will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. But it also recalls that it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter did not yet understand this when he wanted to remain with Christ on the mountain. It has been reserved for you, Peter, but for after death. For now, Jesus says, go down to toil on earth, to serve on earth, to be scorned and crucified on earth. Life goes down to be killed. Bread goes down to suffer hunger. The way goes down to be exhausted on his journey. The spring goes down to suffer thirst. And you refuse to suffer. We've only got a page left to go. Let's, let's soldier on and get it finished. Jesus' ascent to Jerusalem, page 557. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. By this decision, he indicated that he was going up to Jerusalem prepared to die there. Three times he had announced his passion and resurrection. Now, heading toward Jerusalem, Jesus says, It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. 558. Jesus recalls the martyrdom of the prophets who had been put to death in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, he persists in calling Jerusalem to gather around him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. When Jerusalem comes into view, he weeps over her and expresses once again his heart's desire. Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace but now they are hid from your eyes. Paragraph 559. Jesus' messianic entrance into Jerusalem. How will Jerusalem welcome her Messiah? Although Jesus had always refused popular attempts to make him king, and remember when he multiplied the loaves of bread and said they were going to carry him off making king, and Jesus went off and hid on the mountain. Although Jesus had always refused popular attempts to make him king, he chooses the time and prepares the details for his messianic entry into the city of his father David. Acclaimed as son of David, as the one who brings salvation, Hosanna means save or give salvation. The king of glory enters his city riding on an ass. Jesus conquers the daughter of Zion, a figure of his church, neither by ruse nor by violence, but by the humility that bears witness to the truth. And so the subjects of his kingdom on that day are children and God's poor, who acclaim him as had the angels when they announced him to the shepherds. Their acclamation, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken up by the church in the sanctus of the Eucharistic liturgy that introduces the memorial of the Lord's Passover. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Every Mass, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It reminds us of that wonderful entry into Jerusalem. And I've always liked it. I mean, I really have. I've always liked it. It's like the one time when Jesus gets the cheers that he deserves. And of course, the Pharisees can't stand it. They say, 
make your disciples be quiet. Jesus said, if they were quiet, the stones would shout. So, uh, I really, I really, really love that. And when we do it at church, I don't know what you do, but at church, I am very, very often, I imagine, as we get to that point of the Mass, I imagine, uh, in my mind, your imagination is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And I imagine Jesus riding by. Mm -hmm. And we're all cheering out for him. Uh, I love it. Paragraph 560. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem manifested the coming of the kingdom that the King Messiah was going to accomplish by the Passover of his death and resurrection. It is with the celebration of that entry on Palm Sunday that the church's liturgy solemnly opens Holy Week. Well, we made it. We made it to the end of that particular section. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, you are our Messiah and our Lord. We recognize what Peter recognized, that you are the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Lord, we thank you so much that you have come to save us. We submit our lives and our hearts and our minds and our bodies, our careers, everything in our life, we submit it to you, Lord. We ask you to save us. Hosanna, save us. Bring us your saving presence in this life and let us live with you forever in heaven. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, amen.